You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Uh, as I mentioned, thank you so much for joining us. I want to first uh, say thank you and welcome to our friends at the uh, Diocese of Pittsburgh Warming Shelter in the Cultural District. It's so blessed to have you guys with us again today and all of those watching online. If you're watching online, why don't you put in the comments where you're watching from. I know there are folks from around the country, so we're so blessed to have that. Now, if you weren't with us uh, this last week, we, are, uh, we kicked off a series last week called The Time of Your Life, and we were walking through this incredibly timely story of Esther, located in the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. Last week, we looked at how Mordecai and Esther had hidden their identity and uh, had blended in with a pagan Persian culture that they were living in. The next few weeks, we're going to be continuing this story, looking at what transpires for Mordecai and Esther with some pretty dire circumstances. Uh, The whole month is going to conclude, as you heard earlier, on Sunday, January 3rd, with our Vision Sunday. Now, you might be familiar here at Calvary, if you've been here for a little while, we usually have our annual Vision meeting uh, in February after service. This year, we're doing it as part of the service, and uh, we're going to share some incredible things that God is doing here at Calvary over this last year. Some things to look forward to uh, in this year. We have some facility updates that we're going to be sharing that are going to be happening and some other cool things. This is our 50th anniversary as a church, so we're going to be sharing some cool things that are going to be taking place with that. So uh, make sure you can join us Sunday, January 30th. For those who are catalysts here, uh, we'll have a brief meeting after service just to, uh, to vote on some items that we need to vote on, uh, Board of Deacons and other items. So uh, look forward to that on January 30th. Now today, uh, we're picking up this story. As I mentioned uh, last week, uh, we looked at how Mordecai had been concealing that he was a Jew, uh, encouraging his cousin, uh, whose name is Esther, who he had raised as his own child to do the same. And on top of that, he enters Esther in this contest or pageant to be the next queen of Persia. Now, today we're going to fast forward about five years. Esther has been chosen as the queen of Persia, so she's the queen. Things are going really well for Mordecai and Esther both. Uh, they were, they, they've continued to conceal their Jewish roots. Esther is now living in the luxury of the palace. Mordecai is working for the king's court. Uh, things are going really well. Mordecai, uh, during this, overhears a plot to assassinate the king. It's recorded in Esther chapter 2, verse 21. Here's what it says. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, could you be, imagine being that guy living through middle school? Bigthana, uh, he did not have good middle school years. We'll just go with that. Two of the king's officers were guarded, who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Do not mess with the king. That is really, that's horrible. Now, this is a really odd kind of sidebar in the middle of the story of Esther. If you're reading the whole book of Esther, you read chapter one and got to chapter two, and you're you're nearing the end of chapter two, there's like these three verses right in the middle of this chapter that basically share about this assassination story, this assassination discovery of Mordecai. And then it goes on. Like, it's like, here's a little uh, excerpt, and then we're going to move on with the story. Uh, literally three verses. Mordecai finds out 
uh, the plot from these two loudmouth assassins, reports it, it's recorded, that's it. Like if you and I were writing this story, we'd be screaming, well, what happened? Like, then what? Okay, he finds this, discovers this plot, well, what happens? Does Xerxes celebrate Mordecai? Does he reward him? Not at all, he doesn't. Instead, to avoid future threats, he elevates one of his officials, the angry, hated Haman into second in command in the entire empire. And, and Haman wouldn't take this promotion lightly. Maybe you've had these guys, these ladies at your workplace, like they get the promotion and they're like, oh no, that was the last thing we needed to do. It's going to go to their head. This was that times 10. He would demand adoration, attention, usually relegated for people of royalty. Here's how this unfolded in Esther chapter 3. It says in verse 1, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadeth, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. Now, the reference to Haman's roots here might mean nothing to us, but it's really important, and I want to highlight this for a second. Uh, the fact that Haman was an Agagite is huge. An Agagite was the descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were some of the Jews' uh, most heated enemies throughout ancient history. The Amalekites were ruthless, straight-up cruel to Israelites over the years. In fact, Moses and, and at the end of his life, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, would, would uh, speak to, to the Israelites, his people, about how the Amalekites had mistreated them. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. It says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Moses is like, guys, they treated you wrong. You need to, don't, don't ever forget this because this was cruel. They were so evil, they wouldn't even attack the Israelites from the front, but picked off the weak and weary who were lagging behind. The Jews and the Amalekites had been at war for centuries. So the fact that Haman was a descendant of this group of people that wanted nothing more than to make Jews suffer is significant to take note of here. Now, not long after Haman's promotion, on a pretty normal day in the citadel of Susa, Mordecai and many of the other officials were just going about their daily duties. Uh, a cloud had settled over the citadel in recent years when they heard that Haman had risen to this new role. And uh, as I mentioned, he was a man who definitely was proud of his position. And uh, this wasn't something that he just uh, kind of kept to himself, but shared with everyone. He didn't just demand respect. He demanded adoration. In fact, he asked, he demanded that everyone in, who encountered him bow before him as if he was a king, a royal. And, and then it happened, the unthinkable. On, on this particular day, Mordecai happens to be standing at the king's gate as Haman and his entourage are passing through. Each of the soldiers and officials standing there immediately bow down to the mighty Haman, their faces in the ground. It is everyone except Mordecai. There was this gasp among the officials whose faces were on the ground as Mordecai stood there defiantly. One of the members of Haman's security detail begins barking orders at Mordecai to bow immediately but he refused. This is the first time Mordecai has ever done anything like this. Hume, Haman fumed with anger. This decision by Mordecai would reveal the depth of Haman's hatred 
that was raging below the surface. In fact, this moment was more than just two men meeting in the citadel of Susa. It was the converging of over a thousand years of bias and hatred. Now imagine the snapshot of this moment for a second. Haman's riding on this beautiful steed surrounded by, his, by soldiers, this entourage, all in the shadows of the king's palace. Everyone surrounding them had their faces to the ground, and there's Mordecai standing upright. He, he was as rigid as a light post in a snowstorm. Like, he wasn't budging. He wasn't moving. He's the only one standing. This was a monumental moment for Mordecai. This was the moment that Mordecai refused to bow. And day after day, this would happen. It continued to happen. He refused to bow. Uh, some of his friends and other colleagues were speaking to him and, and, and encouraging, like, just bow already. Like, you're making this awkward for all of us. Then he finally explains to those around him why he refused to bow. This is the first time. Esther chapter 3, verse 4. He had told them he was a Jew. This was the moment for Mordecai, the mask came off for the very first time in his life. Mordecai has spent his entire life hiding who he really was and encouraging his cousin Esther to do the same. They both looked fully Persian. They talked Persian. Uh, In nearly every way, they had become fully Persian. Even to the point that Esther was able to marry the Persian king. And Mordecai worked for that king. Not a soul would have ever known or suspected that they were descendants of God's people. But one look at Haman by Mordecai changed it all. Mordecai couldn't bow before an enemy of God's people. Haman loses it. The raw, unfiltered hatred inside of Haman explodes. Listen to this, these verses and tell me if this isn't pure evil at work. Listen to this. Esther chapter 3 verse 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. For Haman, it wasn't enough to just destroy Mordecai, but to wipe the earth of all the Jews residing across the vast Persian Empire. This was blatant, unadulterated racism at work. He saw himself as superior to those people. Those people didn't deserve to live in this kingdom. And so he takes the equivalent of a, of a die, like a piece, a, a die that, that was called a, a pure, and he cast the lot, rolled the die, to determine the date the Jews were going to be executed. The date that comes out is 11 months later. So he goes to the king, and he begins to unfold his devious plan of hate that's concealed under a mask of concern for the king's empire. Here's what it says in verse 8 of Esther 3. There is a certain people, this is Haman speaking to Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all the other people. They do not obey the king's laws. If It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. What's Haman doing here? He's, he's giving a compelling case. At the end there, 10,000 talents might not mean much to you. That was the equivalent of $20 million that Haman is willing to pay out of his own pockets into the royal treasury to kill the Jews across the empire. Now, at this point in the story, uh, if you were with us last week and even today, it's pretty clear Haman is at the core evil. 
And, and, and Xerxes, King Xerxes, if you read the whole story of Esther, he's about as impulsive as my two-year-old in a candy shop. Like, he could, he could go with whatever. He's ready to go this way or that way. But you could never anticipate how incredibly casual Xerxes is at this moment to make a decision as he basically engages in what would be the equivalent of ethnic cleansing. He's going to wipe his empire of an incredible entire race. Here's what it says in verse 11 of Esther 3. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Like, so nonchalant, like not even a deal. And then Haman gets to work. Verse 12, it says, Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal treasurers or tr- secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. That seal meant it was a declaration, a decree of the king. Dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with the order, listen to this, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and on top of that, to plunder their goods. That's devastating. How does King Xerxes and Haman uh, celebrate or respond to this? Listen, verse 15. The king Haman and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. They just basically decreed the elimination of entire race. And all they can do is sit down and enjoy cocktails. This is, this is horrible, evil at work. It wasn't just a command to annihilate the Jews, but to plunder their goods, to, to take all of their wealth and riches. Think of being one of those Jews living in the Persian Empire. Uh, a, a die is just randomly rolled and 11 months later, it's chosen that you're going to die. Not just you, all your family members, everyone you know who's Jewish, they're going to die. They're going to be annihilated, destroyed. <clears throat> Everything they own and worked for is going to be gone. All because someone rolled a die. For, for, for Haman, surely he was thinking, now they have to suffer for 11 months in fear. 11 months of misery. The problem is Haman didn't know this. Listen to this in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. It says, people throw lots to make a decision, but the answer comes from the Lord. Haman thought it was just a matter of chance he rolled a die. What Haman didn't know is God was still at work. You see, chance didn't determine that date. God did. It wasn't a chance that, that reminded Mordecai of his ancestry. God did. It wasn't chance that, that gave Mordecai the courage to take a stand in that moment. God did. And do and you know what's true? God can do the same for you, for me. I understand the world we're living in. You know, we're tired of the battles and the struggles. It's difficult to press on. Maybe like Mordecai and Esther, you feel a long way from what's familiar to you. And places like this, like Persia, can present the perfect ingredients and circumstances for making really bad decisions. My my challenge to you is to have the God-given courage of Mordecai and to finally take a stand and not bow to Haman. Chances are good you might not be, you know, ushered before an ISIS soldier to, to lose your head over your faith, but you probably are going to be tempted at some point to compromise your beliefs or to remain silent in the face of injustice or evil. I promise you, Mordecai moments will be coming your way. Your, your college professor who loves to taunt Christians will stand before the class as he has done many times before and challenges anyone to raise their hand if they follow Jesus. What are you going to do? Or, or your spouse is on a work assignment out of town for a month. You're lonely. One of your coworkers is attractive and gives you attention. And they're available. 
They start texting you after an ongoing text conversation, ask to come over. What are you going to do? You're, you're hanging out with your buddies, grabbing dinner. One of your friends makes a joke, an offhanded joke about African Americans. You've never thought your friends would be racist. They have a good laugh over that joke. Are you going to laugh with them? You, you start a new job. After working there for a little bit, your coworkers show, your, uh, you show you their secret for getting a little extra pay. You fudge your hours a little bit, get a little extra money. They tell you that everyone is doing it. What are you going to do? These Mordecai moments face us all. These are moments where your true commitments are revealed. When everyone else bows, what will you do? Now, now back to the story of Mordecai here. The word is decreed, the date's set, the Jews are now on the clock. This genocide is scheduled for 11 months out. As a member of the Citadel staff, Mordecai gets word of this new edict and abandons any semblance of being proper. Listen to what he does in Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai heard about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on rough cloth and ashes, and went out into the city crying loudly and painfully. But Mordecai went only as far as the king's gate because no one was allowed to enter the gate dressed in rough cloth. The news caused Mordecai to don an outfit more fitting for a funeral at that time coarse clothes, and, and, and he rubbed ashes all over his face. He wandered the streets crying and wailing. He must have been quite the spectacle. Remember, this is Mordecai. He's known to have a connection to the queen. He was known uh, as a well-respected, dignified man in the king's court. All of that was quickly being undone. Esther, on the other hand, had apparently had not heard. She had no idea this decree had been issued. What would, what would follow is a flurry of messages between Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai sends her a copy of the decree and begs her to reach out to her husband, the king, on behalf of her people. Esther pushes back and says, hey, listen, Mordecai, it's not that easy. Like, no one can just approach the king's throne unannounced. The, the person could be immediately executed. Think, remember the, the queen, Queen Vashti? Like, he banished her. This is the same king that can... Flip on a dime. Listen, verse 11, Esther 4, she says, All the royal officials, officers, and people of the royal states know that no man or woman may go to the king and the inner courtyard without being called. There is only one law about this. Anyone who enters must be put to death unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Then that person may live. And I have not been called to the king for 30 days. What's she saying? Listen, this isn't a good idea. Think about this. Esther had a lot of really good, valid reasons not to go to the king in this moment. One, it was against the law. Two, the king was incredibly moody. What's to say he's not grumpy right now and, and might have me executed? He hadn't summoned her in over 30 days. He's probably angry at her. Probably has something against her. What if, she, what if he does choose to kill her? Like, remember Vashti. What could happen? These would have been understandable things for, for Esther to consider, but, but then Mordecai sends this response. And, and it's not just another response, but when, when Mordecai, what Mordecai would say here is one of the most powerful, most profound calls to action I have ever read in my life. And I suspect the same will be for you. What Mordecai writes to Esther wasn't just Mordecai asking his cousin to do something, but he would speak with the heart and words that had ultimately been kissed by heaven. It was obvious that there was more than just Mordecai's words clothed in emotion these were words that were inspired by God himself. These two verses I'm going to read are so profound that the entire series we're walking through is really built on these few sentences, these few verses. In fact, in respect to what we're about to read, it's so powerful. Could we all stand? 
Can we stand? If you're watching the line, you can stand too. Uh, I want to read these words uh, together. And, and if you can just follow along with me. Here's what it says. Verse 13 of Esther 4. Just because you live in the king's palace, don't think that out of all of the Jewish people, you alone will escape. Like, just because you're in the palace doesn't mean you're going to escape. If you keep quiet at this time, someone else will help and save the Jewish people. But you and your father's family will all die. And who knows that you may have been chosen queen just for a time such as this. Think about this. Like, you are in your position for just a time such as this. You can be seated this morning. Uh, We have often found ourselves in circumstances that cause us maybe to cry ourselves to sleep, to lay in bed staring at the ceiling wondering if we're ever going to find our way out of this miserable job, if we're ever going to work things out in our marriage, if if we're ever going to have that child that we've longed for, if if we're ever going to move on or or, or process the loss of, of a loved one. How can we go on? These are moments where it seems like the night will never end. And Mordecai's words in this moment are this one-two punch that I don't want to miss today. First, he's saying no one is above these moments of pain. I don't care what family you come from, how much money you have, or how much money you don't have. None of us are exempt from pain. This is what Mordecai says to Esther. Just because you live in the palace doesn't mean you won't experience the effects of this decree. None of us are given a free pass. In fact, this is what Jesus said in in John's gospel, chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. There's no getting around it. We're all going to face trouble, pain, disappointment, loss, and sorrow. I know it's not really a good pick-me-up, is it? But, But stick with me. The second part of what Mordecai is saying is just as big. Not just that no one is above pain, but one way or another, relief will always come. I know what you're thinking. Nick, you don't understand. You haven't lived life long enough. Relief doesn't always come. No, no, no. Relief will always come. This is what Mordecai is saying. Esther, you're not above this. And if you don't do something about it, God will find another way. Because relief will always come. Mordecai saw something on the horizon. It was a conviction. Not, not of something he was wishing for. Like hoping might happen. But it was something he knew deeply to be true. God always brings deliverance. God always finds a way. Maybe not the way we think or we could see, but deliverance will come. God had awakened something in Mordecai that had been dormant, maybe for most of his life. It was the conviction and belief that even when God is invisible, he's still working. I want you to hear this so clearly today. No matter what you're walking through, even when God isn't visible, he's still working. This is the closing part of the statement Jesus made in, in John 16, He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's like, guys, you're going to face trouble, but don't worry, I've got this. I've overcome the world. You might not see it right now, but take heart, be encouraged, put your trust in God, because I have overcome all the trouble, the pain, and the grief present in this world. This reminds me of what the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. It's not a good sentence to get. Indeed, we have felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Does your view of your current situation take into account 
the certain deliverance of God. Like what you're facing, I know it's, it's overwhelming. You might be walking through despair. Does it take into account the certain deliverance of God? I, I suspect many of us who say we're followers of Jesus, instead of uh, adopting that kind of approach, often adapt, adopt a, a different view of life. One that sounds maybe more like a Shakespearean tragedy. Something like this. You know, we live in a beautiful but broken world. It cannot be fixed. Nothing can be done. We make the best of it, and then we die. And that's how most people live their lives. But can I tell you this morning, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the story that God is writing. The time we've, placed, we've been placed into is not meant uh, to just exist or survive. God made us to transform a broken world, to bring healing to the broken, to bring freedom to the captives, to bring sight to the blind. Mordecai was saying to Esther, yes, pain is part of life, but relief is coming. One way or another, help is coming. God is a deliverer. And, and then he makes one of the, my favorite statements in all of Scripture. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows that you may have been chosen queen for such a time as this. This statement by Mordecai would produce a turnaround in Esther's story that she never imagined was possible but so desperately needed. Listen to her response. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. She says, go and get all the Jewish people in Susa together. For my sake, fast. Do not eat or drink for three days. Have you ever not eaten or drank anything for three days? This is serious. Like what, what he's calling her to, them to is serious. Do not eat or drink anything for three days. Night and day, I and my servant girls will also fast. They're doing the same. Then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Listen to this. And if I die, I die. This is the moment in the story of Esther, the entire, this entire book of the Bible, where everything changes. Everything turns on its head. It's the moment when Esther's faith finally meets her function. The moment when the woman of God recognizes she's the queen of Persia. This, she doesn't ask, she doesn't request or beg this. She makes an imperative command. Gather the Jews. Fast and pray for me. Her passive approach uh, has, not, has now been replaced with a deep resolve and conviction. She's no longer simply a beauty queen. She is a woman of God ready to lead her people through this crisis. Now, now let me bring this back to 2022 and put this in context for all of us. Mordecai's words brought such clarity to Esther that something ignited within her. Like something that, that maybe was dormant comes alive. The woman, uh, this woman was, that was ready to compromise and hide who she really was is now calling for a fast and ready to die if she has to. For the first time possibly, Esther recognized that her life was part of a bigger plan. Uh, what, what she had achieved, accomplished in the position she held were not of her own doing, but, but were God's, part of God's bigger purposes. There's not, this isn't only true for Esther it's true for you. It's true for me. God has specifically chosen your date of birth. He's put you where you live for a reason. The moment in time you've been placed is intentional. You see, what if God has positioned you specifically where he has to bless people in ways you could have never imagined, just like you did with Esther? I believe so strongly that this is your hour. This is your time. We were made to take a stand like Mordecai to speak up like Esther. You see, the question isn't, will God deliver us? The question is, are we going to be part of his deliverance? 
Esther could have very easily remained silent, but she would have missed one of the most pivotal moments in her entire lifetime. She would have missed being part of sparing the lives of countless thousands of Jews. And for us, you know, we can easily, we can easily keep our mouths shut. We can shrink back when things get difficult, when things are uncomfortable, when it's just not feeling right. We can retreat to our safe, quiet spaces. But what if instead, what if instead we saw the challenges before us as an opportunity for God to do the miraculous? What if God is just waiting for us to stand up, to let our voices be heard, to realize that while we're praying for a deliverer, he's actually positioned us, placed us, and prepared us to be part of the solution that our world so desperately needs. We may never speak to kings like Esther. We may never lead a movement like people, people like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr., but our lives are continually crossing paths with opportunities to participate in the holy work that God is doing in this world to redeem the pain, to deliver the captives. Some of you might not know this, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a really special year for us as a church. It's our 50th anniversary, like 50 years, five decades. Calvary was started back in August of 1972. You know, later this year in August, we're going to be having a big celebration of this moment. And as we cross the threshold of five decades as a church, uh, there's a word that I believe so deeply God is speaking to us prophetically about the times we're in. As the worship team comes this morning, you know, this is a word that God placed heavily in my heart earlier last year in May. And, and as God kind of spoke this to me, I, I thought it was just for me. But this last week, as I was preparing for today, God just really impressed in my heart. This isn't just for you, Nick. This is for your church. This is for the entire church. What, what, what God showed me is uh, recorded in the book of Isaiah, the first four verses of chapter 61. Here's, here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 61, verse, starting in verse 1. I want you to hear this so clearly. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. That sounds so angry. What he's saying is God's gonna control the outcomes. Don't feel you have to pay back people. He goes on to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Church, we are these oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is verse four. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Let me, let me just speak something into you today. Whatever you're walking through, as a church, I want to make this promise. We will not struggle our way to our 50th birthday as a church. Limping, just thankful that we survived. 
Church, we're not going to simply crawl our way through this pandemic and be satisfied with just making it to the other side. No, we have a calling. We have a responsibility. I know with certainty that God has brought you and me together for this moment, this time. This is our time. This is our moment to shine. We will not shrink back. We will not sit down. We will not, we were, we're going to stand up. We're going to proclaim good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, release prisoners from darkness. Where others see ashes, we will see beauty. Where others see despair, we will clothe ourselves with praise. We are going to rebuild and restore what the enemy has devastated. There will be renewal once again in the land of the living. We will be those oaks of righteousness that will never waver, but will display God's splendor to this world. And my question to you today is will you join me? Are you ready to rise up in our moment and change the world around us? And here's my challenge to you today. Transformation always demands surrender. For, for Esther, she had this moment where everything switched. What did she do? She, she commanded Jews in the citadel of Susa to fast. What were they doing? They were surrendering. They were surrendering food and water to fast. It demanded surrender. To see that change transformation, it demands surrender. To see transformation in any area of your life, from weight loss to learning a new language to becoming a better spouse, it demands surrendering something. And if God is going to use us to transform the world, to step into the times he's placed us, it will require our surrender. And here's what I'm challenging you to do. Over the next three weeks, 21 days, I want to invite you to join me in what we're calling this surrender challenge. Should have gotten a card when you came in. If you're here in person, if you're online, you can go to calvaryirwin.com and click on the time of your life button there and it has a list of all of this. Over the next three weeks, I want to invite you to join me in this challenge. And the surrender challenge is saying, I will commit to do three things every day to exercise the surrender of what God has given me and to put it back into his hands for his glory. Like, God, you've blessed me. And there's three things. Our time, five minutes with God. Spend five minutes praying, talking to God, reading his word. That's minimum. You can do more than that, okay? Minimum, five minutes every day. Put it in your calendar, whatever you gotta do. You give your time, your treasure. Five dollars to bless someone. Maybe that's keeping a five dollar bill in your pocket like every day. Might mean going to the bank, you know, today and get, you know, five dollar bills to keep in your pocket, in your purse. $5 to bless someone. You know, you could buy like one gallon of gas for someone if you'd like. Um, wh whatever that looks like, all right? Maybe you can get like half a latte at Starbucks. Um, $5 to bless someone. Over the next 21 days, every day, $5. And the last thing is five minutes to serve someone. Use your talent. You, your, you have skills, you have abilities, you have opportunities, you have influence. Five minutes to serve someone that you don't benefit from. That could be at work, that could be your neighborhood, that could be at the grocery store, I don't know what that is, but you're on the lookout for this. Five minutes with God, five dollars to bless someone, five minutes to serve someone. Over the next 21 days, and as God moves and does things, and I promise you he will, I want you to share the stories. Maybe you can email it to us or take a video just sharing the story of what God does through you and send it to us. Because on January 30th, 21 days from now, it's our, our, our Vision Sunday. And we're going to celebrate what God has done over these last 21 days. God's going to do mighty things through you. You might be like, I'm not a pastor. I don't, you don't have to be a pastor. You have all that you need. You have time, you have treasure, and you have talent. That's all you need. 
Use it for God's glory. Let's surrender it together and see what God can do. We're not asking for everything. I'm not asking for $5,000 or 500 hours. Or, or, or I'm not, we're not asking for everything. We're asking for five minutes, $5, five minutes to serve someone. That simple. You can take this card with you. Don't put it in your, your room. Put it in your car. Put it somewhere where you're gonna see it when you're out and about, when you're going through your day. You remember, today, I gotta, I gotta find five minutes. Start, maybe start the day, five minutes with God. And, and if you're like, man, I, 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 I'm gonna forget this. If you text the word surrender to 55498, we'll send you a text every morning with a passive scripture just to encourage you throughout this challenge. So every morning, you're gonna get a quick text message. It's not gonna be like a you know, paragraph or you know, a whole book. It's just gonna be a verse of scripture to encourage you uh, throughout this challenge to keep going, to keep pushing, to, to give that five minutes to God, to, to give $5 to, to bless someone, to give five minutes to serve someone. Uh, we're gonna do this over the next 21 days. This isn't like for eternity. You're not gonna be in some like, you know, spam text list where we're gonna start spamming you about, uh, you know, uh, getting your, your car insurance or your car warranty figured out or something weird like that. Uh, this is just about positioning ourselves as a church and as individuals to be those that can stand in the face of injustice, can stand in the face of, of evil, can stand in the face of devastation and say, you know what? God's anointed us. He's anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He's anointed us to, to rise up, to, to bind the brokenhearted. He's, he's, he's anointed us to be those that bring beauty out of ashes. God wants to use you. This isn't a year to simply sit back, relax, and watch God do stuff. No, 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 no. This is a year to come off the sidelines and say, you know what? I'm ready to get in the game. I'm ready to do something about this. We're gonna change the world together. And as we prepare to close this morning, I wanna ask you to stand. I wanna ask you to stand and, and we're gonna sing a song together here. And after we finish this song, I want you to hold the, the card you should have gotten when you came in this morning. And we're gonna pray over this. I wanna pray that what you surrender to God is given back to you 10 times over to be a blessing to the world. That you may, might be like, man, what's five minutes with God? What's five dollars? What can I possibly do? God's gonna blow your mind as you give it to him, as you surrender it to him and are willing to be used. I promise you. Esther simply asked, would you just fast and pray for me? Next week, we're gonna talk about what transpired from that. But I tell you, it was changing, life-changing, so transformative miraculous. God wants to do miraculous things through you if we're willing to surrender. Let's sing this song together this morning. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 